So ones are titled The Reformer. After the video was done um, that we recorded, me and Chrissy stayed on the call and talked for a couple minutes, and she thought of the name The Fixer, and she really liked it. And I like I like it especially a lot better than The Perfectionist. Um, you'll see that in places, and it, like we said, it has a really negative connotation. But The Reformer, I think, is good, but The, fi the Fixer, I, um, I really like. So... That is what a type one is. They are rational, idealistic. They like to, um, um, for themselves, they have this ideal self. That they are always trying to achieve and for the world, right? They're, they're purposeful, self-controlled. They tend to lean towards perfectionistic with things and not necessarily in a negative way all the time. When unhealthy, yes, um, but when healthy, um, a, positive, a positive way to be perfectionistic. Ones have a strong sense of right and wrong. Um, they, they want to always do the right thing and they want other people to do the right thing and they will try to help people along the way with that. They'll improve situations, um, people, society. They, they care about that improvement to become this ideal world and ideal people. I found this quote that said, history is full of ones who have left comfortable lives to do something extraordinary. And they did this because they felt that something higher was calling them. History is full of ones who left comfortable lives to do something extraordinary. Ones are not just okay with the status quo. They want, they want, they want it to be perfect, a positive way of perfect. One's uh, basic fear is of being corrupt or evil, um, something inside of them being defective, right? So they are not okay. They're scared that they're not okay just being themselves. They, that's that constant having to improve. But the problem is um, it's not necessarily always improvement, but it's fixing. Um, so... The difference in that is it could possibly be they see themselves as broken or defective and they always have to fix themselves. It's good to want to improve, right? Like that's a positive thing. But if you're constantly trying to fix yourself and your story is that you are not okay as you just are as a person, that you are broken, that you always need fixing, that that gets in your head, right? That's That's not a true story. But it's the story, like Chrissy said, the inner critic. Um, I think that that's a good way to say it. It's this inner critic becomes too loud and overtakes. The motivation um, or the basic desire is kind of conversely that, right? Like they want to be good, to have integrity, to be balanced, to be fully um, perfect and well. Um, what ones sometimes just need to hear is that they are beautiful the way they are. They are wonderful the way they are. We appreciate the fact that they bring fixing and improvement to the world, but um, it's okay being who you are. Motivations behind ones, uh, they also like to be right and beyond criticism, beyond criticism from other people. So if they're always doing the right thing and they're always um, have the right answer, they've always thought through everything, right? They, it feels like they should have everything correct. Um, and they like that, that motivates them. Um, this, in a positive aspect, again, leads to improvement for other people and for themselves. And in a negative sense, it can be, it can maybe come off as critical um, 
or judgmental and things like that. Uh, it again all depends on if they're in a healthy place or an unhealthy place and how they're coming off and how they're presenting it and it's also dependent on how other people are understanding it, right? It's not only it's not solely up to the person expressing it, but it's to other people and how how they are understanding it. Ones have a moral certainty about a lot of things and this strong sense of mission and purpose, but sometimes ones feel the need to justify their actions. So Christy said in the video, ones sometimes explain themselves um, and kind of sometimes ones will want that affirmation of, yeah, that's, that's right. Like you clearly did your work in figuring this out. Um, but it's sometimes this justification for their actions. Ones really value logic, objective truth. Sometimes one gets told that they don't have feelings. And this changes depending on wings for ones too. But sometimes ones uh, get told that they don't have feelings. Obviously, ones have feelings. Everybody has feelings. It's, it's, that's not helpful. But ones do value logic and objective truth um, more than just a subjective opinion, right? They, they want objection. They want, they want factual things. In times of stress and growth, in times of stress, uh, ones move to a four. So we haven't talked about a four. It's titled the individualist, and these people really value autonomy and being who they truly are. And uh, in times, the negative side of four is they can be really moody and irritable and irrational. And so in times of stress, uh, ones may react like that. They may be moody, they may be irrational, but they can learn from a four, the high side of four, the good parts of four, that um, they can be themselves. So fours really value being who they are and not what other people want them to be. And um, ones have a tendency to, again, live up to this idealistic thing that they set for themselves or people that they care about have set for them. Um, and they can learn from a four just to appreciate who they are, to live into that. In times of growth, ones move to seven. So really, I don't have anything new to say other than what Christy said on the video, right? Like ones can be a whole lot of fun. They can... They can be joyful, exciting, all the like the energy and fun that seven brings. Ones do that in health. They do that in good times. Um, they can also ones value structure and order, and they could maybe even become a little bit spontaneous, right? If they're in a really good place, sevens are super spontaneous. Ones are the opposite, um, but maybe they can become a little bit spontaneous. Every time I hit the wrong one. Uh, wings for nine or for ones. Again, wings are the two numbers, one on each side. Um, so a a one with a nine wing. I saw it titled the idealist. I don't find the titles for like the wings to be helpful, but this person, a one with a nine wing, is usually a little more calm and laid back than other ones. Uh, they usually reserve their emotions a bit more. So a one with a two wing will often express their feelings and emotions a little more easily than a one with a nine wing. A one with a two wing, I saw it titled The Advocate. And this person is uh, more people oriented 
twos are super people oriented and so ones with the two wing tend to um, tend to lean that way and they're often aware of people's emotions a little more um, than uh, one with the nine wing and the last kind of uh, different factor may be that a one with the two wing tends to get things done a little quicker than a one with the nine wing again nines have problems with like energy and slowness of pace and stuff so a one with a two wing tend to um, really be a little more doers than a nine wing. <laughs> Famous people, um, Michelle Obama is apparently a one, Nelson Mandela, again people who like have really paved the way for a lot of really important things, um, Tina Fey, Harrison Ford, one that's not on there that I realized on the way I should have put is Richard Rohr. He's a um, just a brilliant uh, Christian author, teacher, priest, like all the things. Um, he is an Enneagram one. A lot of the stuff that we get to talk about the Enneagram, we read Richard Rohr each week to kind of gather some of this information. So Richard Rohr is a one. If you don't know him, look him up. He he does write really wordy and um, he's. I mean, he sounds really smart when he writes. He is really brilliant, but I mean, he likes he likes to sound smart too. So, um, some fictional characters: Mary Poppins. I found this. I saw that one, and I really liked it because I think it shows like Mary Poppins is a lot of fun, right? So, like, I think it shows this fun side of ones that doesn't get enough credit. Um, so, Mary Poppins is on there. Hermione Granger. I saw Captain America. I don't know if I agree, but I saw it in two or three different places, so maybe I just don't. He, he might be a, a type one wing one. <laughs> so you think he's you think he's a one? I was wondering if he's a two. I think everything that drives him is 100% what's the right thing to do. Like his yeah. Yeah. So maybe a one is right. And uh, Caleb wants to share. Um, a one from The Simpsons. I forget who it is. Marge Simpson from The Simpsons is an Enneagram one. <laughs> so at their best, ones ones are wise. They've really thought things out well. They are brilliant. They are thoughtful. They're realistic, and they have this really, really impressive self-discipline um, and order to their life. And this from that grounding, they can create real meaningful change in the world. But at their worst, ones can become overly critical, negative. Um, they tend, when they're really unhealthy, they deal with things in absolute. So it's one fully or the other. Um, and sometimes their truth is the only truth. Um, they can become resentful. But again, ones at their best are really wonderful people to be around. And like I said in the video, we, we need a lot of people like ones. Like we need a lot of those things in the world, so. Before I read the scripture this morning, uh, this morning as I was uh, going through Instagram, um, while I ate my breakfast, um, I got an ad from Sherwin-Williams. Um, if you're wondering about the influence and the spread of the Enneagram, 
Um, they are launching a line of paint colors that are inspired by the Enneagram. Um, and uh, I went to the website to look at the colors. Some are, I get, some are, eh, but uh, Sherwin-Williams is even getting on the Enneagram um, gimmick train. So we are we are so on brand and on trend. Um, <laughs> this morning I was like, um, did we influence Sherwin-Williams? No, we didn't. Um, but that's just how pervasive um, the Enneagram is in our culture beyond just church um, in general. So if you're looking, if you're feeling really into your number and you're like, I have found myself um, and you want your house to reflect that, Sherwin-Williams can help you out. Um, Our scripture this morning is from Romans 3 um, and uh, starting with verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteousness and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. God does not love you because you are good. God loves you because God is good. Richard Rohr, Enneagram One. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Leonard Cohen. A moment of self-compassion can change your entire day. A string of moments can change the course of your life. Christopher Germer. Perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. Anne Lamott who is anything but an Enneagram one, if you've read any of her stuff. (laughs) What is this self inside us, this silent observer, severe and speechless critic who can terrorize us? T.S. Eliot. One of my favorite authors that I quote often, uh, she's a researcher, she is an Enneagram one, Brene Brown. Um, She has turned her struggle with perfectionism um, into a whole body of work (laughs) and life of research where she studies how women and uh, men deal with shame. Brown defines shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's an emotion that affects all of us and profoundly shapes the way we interact in the world. And she says, where perfectionism exists, shame is always lurking. In fact, shame is the birthplace of perfectionism. When I first read Brene Brown and I started reading this word shame, And she talked about how universal it was. (laughs) The ways that I experienced shame, uh, just that inner critic, it and what it did to uh, to change the way that I felt like I was unworthy and unlovable. It was so common and so pervasive that I 
as Christy said, I didn't realize that I'm not a one, but I didn't realize that voice wasn't what everybody was experiencing all the time. Um, that it had a name, it had a category for itself. Um, there was life outside of shame. Brown goes on to say, perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect, live perfectly, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Perfectionism is self-destructive simply because there is no such thing as perfect. Perfection is an unattainable goal. Additionally, perfectionism is more about perception. We want to be perceived as perfect. Again, this is unattainable because there is no way to control perception regardless of how much time and energy we spend trying. Paul is our patron saint of perfectionism and rightness. We first find Paul, we, we see him holding the coats of the people that are stoning Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian faith. He was so convinced that this was wrong, that, that this new Jesus way was wrong, that he went after the earliest Christ followers. He was there when Stephen was murdered, and, and from there we learned that he had papers. He got papers from the highest leaders in the Jewish synagogue um, to go to other towns and to make sure that other Christians were either imprisoned or killed. It wasn't until a voice from heaven, maybe Jesus, maybe God, there's lots of debates about that, but on the road to take these papers to to the leaders in these other towns to go after these Christians, he hears a voice that says, stop what you are doing. You are persecuting me, God. It takes a literal act of God <laughs> for him to stop on his earlier path of rightness. Even after becoming a Christian, a Christ follower, um, it seems that Paul has a couple of disagreements with folks throughout the New Testament letters. And after these, the, each person goes their separate ways. Paul has a strong sense of rightness, and he has trouble being with people who disagree with him about things that he sees as important. I've mentioned this before when we talked about the scriptures about women, um, but we see his theology, his sense of what is right and wrong for us as individuals and for this blossoming new Christian movement changing throughout his letters. He is very dogmatic, uh, very certain in one place, and then will seem to contradict himself just a few sentences later or, or in another letter. That's why there's a lot of different ways to read the letters of Paul. And it's no wonder why the church, our church, the big collective church, who likes to have guidelines and rules to follow, have moved to Paul's writings to give us guidance for what church should be. I've alluded to, I've, or I've said this before, but once I was in a, a workshop where uh, there was an argument going between whether we should look to Jesus or Paul for guidance on what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to be a church, um, and which is just crazy, but it is it is a lot of what our Christian movement and uh, churches are built on are the way they understand Paul's letters. But Paul 
also writes about the love of God and the powerful love that we can have for each other. In Romans 3, Paul is almost arguing with himself as he argues with the people that he's writing to in Rome about the benefits or lack thereof for being a Jew, which we know Paul was. He quotes uh, Psalm 10 and 11 um, and when he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. But later in that chapter, goes on in verses 21 to 26 that I read earlier, to say that our righteousness, our imperfectness, is what allows God to do the work that only God can do. Paul goes on in this letter to say in verses 38 and 39 in that same chapter, of uh, chapter 3, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to fully separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brene Brown says, shame hates it when we reach out and tell our story. It hates having words wrapped around it. It can't survive being shared. Shame loves secrecy. Nadia Boltzweber has said, see, shame doesn't come from God's voice. Shame comes from the voices who say they are speaking for God, and that is different. God loves you. God enjoys you. God created you just the way that you are. No clauses on that. No, we are not perfect, but you are created just as you are for a reason. When God created the world, um, we know that Adam and Eve are about to make a mistake in the garden. That propensity to make that mistake, to 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 do and disobey God was in them even in the garden. It was in them, but God still made them and called it good. God was pleased with creation. Richard Rohr says in his book on the Enneagram, ones have to stop wanting all or nothing. They need the perfection that can only be found in God. They can't create perfection on their own. That's why they're dependent on the patience of their fellow humans and God. There is no getting to a certain point to be worthy of love. There is no accomplishing certain things in order to please God. You please God by your very existence. You are doing the very best that you can with the resources you have, and so are others. He didn't say that. That's my take on Brene Brown. (laughs) That voice inside your head that says you are not doing enough, keep doing more, make everything better, make everything perfect, that is not the voice of God. I actually read in multiple resources uh, this advice to give that voice another name so that you can speak to it and talk to it. It made me think of um, actress and social media personality personality, Tabitha Brown, I don't know if any of y'all follow her, she does cooking uh, videos, and she's known for things saying like, so like that, and um, I do this because it's my own business, Um, but she uh, named her hair, 
Donna. Um, she has she wears her hair naturally, and she uh, named her hair Donna, and her abs uh, that she was working on in the gym, Abatha. Uh, she let us know week before last in a post that she was concerned that Abatha had left without telling her she was going anywhere, and it did not seem that Abatha was coming back. Uh, she talks about Donna, her hair, as if she's another person, uh, one with their own moods and um, needs to be cared for and that has a mind of its own. And I wondered if giving that critical voice that we all have but that we know that Enneagram ones listen to loudly, a, a name like that that you can talk to, that you can push away, so you realize it's just not, it's not always the voice of what is right, what has to be done. It's the voice trying to tell you what's right. Brown says wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. It is going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave brave, and worthy of love and belonging. Uh, I've quoted and read part of one of these before, but in her book, Honest Enneagram, Sarah Jane Case ends each chapter with a letter to whatever Enneagram number, uh, to, to the people who kind of reside in that place. Um, and I want to just close by reading just a little bit of the letter that she writes to ones at the end. That waking up every day and putting in the effort to exist with the integrity that you do is more than anyone expects of you. You are good, just as you are. You are good. Life is unpredictable and it can be tempting to try and make it all make sense. It's tempting to flirt with the idea that we can make the world exactly what feels right to us. I know that you're hard on yourself. I know that the work can seem never ending. And I'm certain that at times you feel tired. Right here in this moment, there is nothing expected of you. You are enough. No more effort. No more striving. You are good. Exactly as you are. I'm going to play um, our Sleeping at Last video as a moment of reflection and continued teaching. I do feel like I need to comment on the fact that this video looks different than all of the other videos because apparently the ministry that had been creating the videos that we have been using um, decided to do something different for the Enneagram Ones, the perfectionist. Um, they didn't create the video that looks like all the others. And so um, after 20 to 25 minutes of searching for it, um, we, we got the next best thing. So know that I know it looks different. Um, I don't know that I would comment on that with any other Enneagram number, but I told Michael as we were setting up, I was like, I mean, out of all the numbers, why not be perfect and get it right when you're doing when the Enneagram one song. Maybe they did it just to mess with y'all. Um, but here is um, Sleeping at Last's song for Enneagram ones. <laughs> 